Hi, I'm Erica. And I'm Julianne. And this is Radical Healing. We gather stories from the Christian missionary community in Japan, where we both grew up, and talk to people about what it's like to navigate life after leaving that bubble. We interview alumni from our alma mater, the Christian Academy in Japan. We also talk to people who've had similar experiences of deconstructing and reconstructing their worldviews in profound ways. By connecting with like-minded people out there who felt silenced or alone in their experiences, we want to serve as a resource for healing. In this episode, I talk about healing from the doctrine of original sin. As a serious and kind of neurotic kid, I took my Christian theology to heart and earnestly believed in original sin and my total depravity as a human. I so strongly identified with my moral brokenness that I remember telling my non-Christian freshman roommate in college that humans are like crap before God. I sincerely believed this about humanity and about myself, that deep down I was fundamentally garbage. It's no surprise then that I've struggled for years with low self-esteem and negative self-talk. Now, as an adult, naming this doctrine as psychologically harmful and learning things like positive self-talk and other ways to love myself has been radically healing for me. The belief in original sin is still central to the faith of many Christians. I hope, though, that this part of my story encourages any believers listening to critically consider their doctrine and how they teach it and think seriously on how it could be affecting the hearts and minds of young people. All right, Julianne, can you do a quick self-introduction? So my name is Julianne. I am half Japanese, half American. I was a missionary kid and I grew up in Japan, spent a chunk of my years in the Boston, Massachusetts area, and then uh, relocated back to Japan where I am currently as an adult. So do you want to break that down into a, a basic timeline? Sure. I was born in Japan. So I'm the youngest of four kids. And I was born in 1991. I was an October baby, just like you. And lived in America for one year when I was three years old. I have fond memories of going to the zoo and eating McDonald's with my mom a lot that year. (laughs) But aside from that, uh, most of my memories are uh, from Japan. Um, Because that's where I spent most of my life. And then I entered CAJ as a kindergartner in 1997. And I went through the CAJ system until 10th grade. I left in 2008 when my parents and I moved to Massachusetts in America. The plan was just to go for one year, but we ended up staying for two years. And I graduated from a public high school there. And then I stayed in the area, I went to college, and then worked in Boston for about a year, after which point I decided I wanted to return to Japan. It's kind of funny because growing up, going to CAJ, I never thought I would return to Japan. The whole education system prepares you to leave and go to an American or Western-style college, and... I didn't really feel connected to Japan aside from CAJ, so I never really thought that I would return. But while I was a college student, I volunteered in Tohoku after the disasters happened. And that was pretty big in changing my relationship with Japan because it was like the first time 
I was building meaningful connections with Japanese people who weren't inside this like missionary bubble. Although I was working with missionaries, so that I mean, it I was, it was still very much kind of that same flavor, but I did make friends like just with like <laughs> normal Japanese people. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, which I just didn't have much opportunity to do that growing up as a kid. And at that time, my parents also had moved to Tohoku. And so it made sense in a lot of ways to return to Tohoku and to continue with that organization that I was volunteering with. So I committed to work there for two years in Miyagi Ken. And then I moved to Kansai, where I am currently. I live in Kyoto. I've been here for just over one year. I live here with my husband. That's super interesting. I mean, I guess I'm surprised to hear that you always picture yourself maybe outside of Japan. I felt like for me, maybe because I did high BA and things like that, I could not picture a life outside of Japan. I always thought that I would come back. I remember like people would go to ICU. I, you know, I was trying to get my parents to let me <laughs> stay in Japan and they were like, no, you, you can't. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. I honestly could not picture living outside of Japan. And it was just very hard for me. And I always thought like, as soon as my parents will let me, <laughs> I'll go back. And then I was like, oh, it's not about them. It's about the Japanese government. Mm. I don't think I could live in Japan, but I would love to go back for like a year or something. Yeah. Yeah, you should. <laughs> Wait, what did you want to do? Like, did you have an idea oh, what you wanted no. to do? I see. No, yeah. I no, I really didn't have a picture of myself as an adult other mm. than like being like a high BA leader or something. <laughs> wow. Actually, I was about to do YWAM. I don't know if you were familiar wow. with that, but they're yes. like the really intense yeah missionaries and I was about to do that and actually I heard some stories and I was like mm, maybe that's not for me which I'm pretty grateful that I chose that because yeah. it sounds like there's a lot of uh, abuse <laughs> and stuff that goes on yeah wow um, I guess because I left I left after my sophomore year um I mean we still stayed in touch but maybe you were more involved in high BA stuff like junior and senior year when I was when I'd already left so I didn't really see yeah. that part of you with yeah. high BA. Um, yeah, it was definitely more later in high school I guess. Mm. So what are you doing now? I do marketing for an e-commerce business and the company is pretty international so I really love it. It's a good blend. I mean, there are Japanese people who work there and then there are a number of European people who work there. So I love that I get to interact and speak Japanese and also English and then also get to hear other languages. And I think that's pretty unique. I couldn't see myself working in a standard Japanese company. I interned actually when I was a college student. I interned for a big Japanese company and I hated it. Although everyone was super nice, but yeah. I couldn't see myself doing that. And so I'm really grateful to have found my current job. And based in Kyoto, living in Kyoto is a big thing for me. I moved here because I wanted to live here. It was a choice where I exercised my agency. Up until this point, you know, like in my 20s and even younger, being in the Christian community and having the Christian worldview, it's like, oh, what does God want me to do next? And where does God want me to be next? And always dependent on this external voice and direction. And then 
for me, not hearing that. And I was feeling like at a loss or confused, not sure what my mission was. But I've graduated. <laughs> I've kind of moved. I've moved away from that worldview. And I just kind of thought, you know, what are the things I need to be happy? Which felt selfish because, you know, doing things for your own happiness, that's like warning bells. You're not, you know, doing something in line with God's will. <laughs> but I was just like, okay, I want to be in a place where I have access to nature and culture, good food, pedestrian friendly, that has good public transportation. And Kyoto is just, it fits all those criteria. And it's just an amazing place to live. Living in Japan has its own challenges. So that was another part of it. If I'm going to be in Japan, I want to make it as easy for myself as possible. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, Tokyo has pretty international populations. How was it in Kyoto? Kyoto is pretty international. Yeah, I think my husband and I could live in Tokyo, but neither of us are attracted to Tokyo at all just because it's so hectic and there's too many people. Yeah, what I love about Kyoto is there's room to breathe and everywhere you look, pretty much you see the mountains. So it's just very reassuring.、Wow. Yeah. Tokyo is definitely, I mean, depending on where you are, but definitely can feel like you're surrounded. There's yeah, not like a view. Yeah. Unless it's in buildings. And I'm sure Tokyo is amazing, but when we were both growing up, we didn't really get to see the cool parts of Tokyo. I mean, we just went to school. No, and、right. maybe, like, you know, a big thing would be to go to Ikebukuro, like the.、Uh, yeah,、concert. that was the big. <laughs> yeah. I think the、yeah. only time I really saw other parts of Tokyo was when. People from the US visited. Yeah. And I would take them around. <laughs> yeah. So I've had a lot of friends and family come visit, which I love, and I love to show them around. And through that, I've gotten to experience more of Japan in a way that, that I didn't, even though I grew up here. And people are like, wow, you know, you grew up in Japan. Like, do you do karate? Or like, I don't know, have these ideas of like being immersed in Japanese culture, which I really didn't feel like I had much of. So as an adult, I've made more effort to connect with Japanese culture and, and just realize, like, oh, okay, I have to actively learn because there's a lot of stuff I'm ignorant about because I went to an international Western style school. Yeah. I mean, I kind of, I, I wouldn't say this feeling was always around, but I think there was also this feeling existed of, you know, Japanese culture is evil. So it's like the only reason you would kind of immerse yourself in Japanese culture. Is to evangelize or, you know, to kind of do this like tourist, like these are the satanic practices or something, you know. And so it's definitely this idea that like you're either a tourist and you're only gonna go in for a quick photo,、uh, but you can't immerse yourself too much because it's not Christian. Because I mean, that was just such a clear binary. That Japanese culture is evil and Western culture is good. I remember our eighth grade trip to Kyoto, and that was definitely the message. Like when we visited temples and shrines, it was like, we're visiting this because it's a historic landmark, but it wasn't presented like the amazing culturally significant places that they were. Even though I am half Japanese, my mom is Christian and my grandparents converted to Christianity too. So we didn't. You know, like for Obon, like we don't do anything. Like we don't visit the graves of our, you know, relatives, ancestors. And, you know, we don't have the kamidana or that are like very normal. 
you Wait, know? is that the thing in your house? Yeah, the the um like Shinto shrine, the Butsudang. I didn't grow up with any of that. And also, you know, we we didn't go to temples on New Year's. That's very normal for Japanese families. So I'm very ignorant about Japanese religion. And I've come to realize that more and more with friends and family coming to visit, you know, they want to see these temples and they ask me questions. And I'm like, I have no idea. And <laughs> Mel, my husband, he, you know, he knew more about it than I did. And I've tried to learn more, but it's just this thing that I realized like, wow, I'm half Japanese, but there are these huge gaps of my uh, knowledge about Japan, Japanese religion in particular, which it's a huge part of the culture. So I felt a huge part of that is because of our Christian education and, and my Christian um, family too. Yeah. And just living in a whole culture that devalues Japanese culture. Yeah, Very totally only- right. Oh, we are, we're learning about this only so that we can understand so that we can convert. Change it. Yeah. Get rid of it, basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've kind of touched on this, but do you have more thoughts on how you felt about being in a missionary Christian world growing up? You know, how do you feel about it now? Well, just speaking about CAJ, I felt like it was this cultural safe bubble for me because I didn't feel comfortable in a lot of like just normal Japanese environments. And even though I'm half Japanese, I don't look like it. I have curly hair. In middle school, I was like tall. tall. (laughs) I was huge, you know, towering over everybody else. It's just like, yeah, especially those years, just feeling like physically awkward and like feeling very conscious of like people looking at me in supermarkets and stuff. And like with being with my mom, being like, oh, people don't think we're related, Um, just feeling kind of like hyper-conscious, self-conscious. And so CAJ, because there were a lot of mixed other kids or, you know, kids from all over, I think it felt like this nice familiar bubble. So there is a lot of positives. At the same time, I do remember feeling uncomfortable with that whole missionary framework too. And we had weekly chapel on Wednesdays. And I remember feeling resistant. You know, we have the worship time and it's geared towards middle schoolers, like elementary and middle schooler kids. There's all these like fun, like jumping songs. And personality wise, I was just not into it. I remember. <laughs> I loved it. And that was me all the way. And that was, and then you're over there like, I don't like this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was like, I was a super serious kid in a lot of ways. Um, you but, really were. Like, yeah. we had the most intense, serious conversations in like third grade. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, it definitely, again, only sort of catered towards one version of spirituality. Yeah, and like, to my credit, I think that like discomfort was, you know, totally valid. Like, yes. kind of like forced emotional, like, come on, kids, yes. I need to get fired up. And like, it's emotional manipulation is what it is. And yeah. you were smart enough to recognize that. I was just a grumpy old man inside, <laughs> but like, I mean, totally valid response. Little yes. Absolutely. I think I had some like inklings of like cynicism, but at the same time, I wanted to be a good student and I didn't want to really question authority. Like I'm super conflict averse. 
So I feel like I just succeeded in the system and like uh, responded with the right Christian answers. I mean, you always did kind of stand out. Like, what was it? Eighth or ninth grade, you did this whole project on like the female reproductive system <laughs> or oh. something. You're like, everyone needs to know. I forget exactly what the topic okay, was, I think but it was very like everyone needs control. to know about. It was something, yeah. It was something that I was like, oh wow, <laughs> like yeah. you were always sort of had your like this. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we just had it in different ways. I remember you like challenged that one guy who planned the chapels about how there weren't any female chapel speakers. Really? I don't remember this. You did. You did. It was that one super grumpy conservative guy who was like planning. I don't know if it was like, remember we had that like spiritual something week every year. Swow. No, that's without walls. Spiritual emphasis weeks. Ah. Skew or something. (laughs) (laughs) I think you like went up to him and you're like, Hey, I was just wondering like, why are there no female speakers? And he was like, Oh, uh, mm." like, I feel like he didn't really know how to react. And I was like, Oh, wow. Was it that guest speak? Like the Korean American guy who came temporarily or he was, Oh my God. No, it was not him. Okay. No, it was like an older white guy. Oh my God. Now I'm getting flashbacks of cars. (laughs) Oh, That was a unique experience. But anyways, back yeah. to you. Um, yeah, I guess I had that like subversive, like yeah. I wanted to shake things up. And also yeah. I think I was very interested in the body. Like in-, in, in That's true. In, that is which I mean, very I feel like that is like how I channeled all of my like sexual awakening and energy. I was like, okay. Like I can be really interested in anatomy and like, wow, the human body is amazing when inside it was probably just like this unconscious, like, oh my God, sex, uh, <laughs> hormones, like. Yes. I mean, um, there's way, that, that's a pretty healthy way to channel that energy. <laughs> I did a biology presentation on birth control. Wow. <laughs> I started getting interested in women's education globally and seeing like the gaps and that and being like oh you know what are some of the issues like family planning like a lot of people are getting pregnant when they don't want to be so we all need to learn more about birth control <laughs> so yes the presentation yes. about it yeah and then the, our health teacher our gym teacher she got concerned because I was like interviewing her or something like that about birth control yeah she was concerned that I was gathering this information for my own purposes <laughs> Like for my personal use. So apparently she like talked to my biology teacher. Wait, why would she talk to your biology teacher and not your parents? I feel like she would just tell on you. I think just to confirm that I was actually oh, doing a that you're actually doing a project research. that you didn't lie. Oh my god. I don't know. I don't know. That is hilarious. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like for anyone to just bring up the topic of birth control at CAJ would just be like absolutely like people would be so uncomfortable. Like, that's just not a thing that people talk about. But I guess I was very much in purity culture where I was like, what? I would never have sex out of marriage. Like, why would they even think that? You know, like, I was just like, I'm purely interested for academic purposes. Anyways, um, wow. Okay, yeah. so did I? So we were talking the about you growing up in a missionary Christian world and how you feel about it. And then the other question is, what's something you had to totally relearn as an adult? Well, going back to how I felt, another thing to add is I was aware of this 
tension between the missionary community, like this divide between the largely North American evangelical missionary community and then everyone else, whether they're Korean missionaries, uh, Japanese Christians or business families. I was always aware of this stark divide and feeling somewhat caught in the middle because I was half Japanese, half American. And even as, you know, little students, we would hear about like, oh, we need to evangelize to the Japanese people and feeling discomfort. Like, well, you know, I'm half Japanese. My mom's Japanese. Like feeling uncomfortable with that, like othering of this whole population and, you know, the authority figures in our lives were like the vast majority were white North American missionaries, many of whom don't speak Japanese. And like we're talking about, keep Japanese culture at arm's distance. Maybe I wasn't aware of it outright at the time, but feeling like this is really weird. And I don't like how, I don't like this narrative of othering and feeling maybe contempt for some of these missionaries, you know, if I'm honest, like many of whom didn't speak Japanese. I'm like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty valid question. I mean, I, you know, I teach ESL and I hear so many people, oh, why you come to America? You don't speak English, blah, blah, blah. And you know how many missionaries go to Japan and never really learn Japanese or even see it as something that they need to do. And no one has that same like anger. Like some people get really angry at, at immigrants here who don't speak English, you know, it doesn't go the other way. And people are moving here mostly because they're forced to, they're pushed out of their homes, you know, or they're escaping violence. And it's like, you chose to go to Japan, you know? Yeah. Along those no, lines, ahead. there's like, I've heard so many stories from missionaries who are like, well, I really wanted to go to Ecuador or Paraguay, but God called and closed the doors on that and we're sent to Japan. I never wanted yeah. to be here. And yeah. I'm just like, what? Like, there's yeah. this kind of narrative like, oh, like God's will for us is to do what we don't want to do. We're also just interpreting basic logistics as God's will. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so this question of relearning, what's something you would say you had to totally relearn as an adult? In the past several years, I've been doing a lot of deconstructing of my Christian beliefs. And the biggest thing that I've had to relearn is the doctrine of original sin. And that's something that that was just in the ether, like of our community in, in CAJ in the education, like, oh, of course, we're all broken. And of course, we're all fundamentally sinful. Of course, that's why we need Jesus. And I really leaned into that and like, really absorbed that. And I kind of took that to the extreme. I mean, well, not the extreme. I'm just like, I was believing that to be true. Which is a pretty extreme belief if you think about it, but it yeah. didn't seem extreme to us. It was just yeah. normal. And seeing how that affected my mental health. Like I've been um, going to therapy for depression, for 
years now, and it's only in the last couple years of meeting with a non-Christian therapist that I've been able to do this work of unpacking harmful doctrine that I had internalized most, you know, foremost of which is this idea that I am fundamentally broken and bad. I've always struggled with self-esteem and self-confidence. And I remember this essay that I wrote while I was at CAJ. I think it was in our ninth or 10th grade year English. We we're doing a section on identity. That's when we did like the Myers-Briggs test and everything. But I wrote a paper and I was talking in my essay about how I had recently been in the school play uh, I, I got the lead role and all these people were congratulating me, but I realized my pride was getting puffed up and like fundamentally I had to return to my true identity, which was a sinner who wow. was only saved by the blood of and Jesus. Who, who <laughs> is reading this essay and being like, yes, this is okay for a young person to believe well, it, you know? To, to her credit, my our teacher responded and said, Sometimes it's just fine to accept compliments. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they could have dug, dug a little bit more in, but... Uh, yeah, but then I'm like, no, like... Yeah. Isn't this... This was really like a fundamental thing going on in you that's not going to go away from one one comment. Yeah, and also, I, f I was like, guys, no, we're all sinners. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, feeling what my you know, conviction, like that, like that's right. Like this strong sense of shame. And unless we have that, we don't appreciate the grace of God, you know? So I felt that was fundamental to being like a true Christian. So yeah, even with her comment, I was like, what? I'm just take, I'm just writing what everybody is teaching me. Yeah. Uh, I'm putting out an, uh, an idea that I'm willing to be debated on, but I think a sort of a fundamental failure of anyone sort of still in this evangelical missionary world is that when there are these sort of negative consequences, a young person just not being able to accept anything except for that they are bad. And that like they have one second of feeling good about themselves and then they beat themselves up about that. I feel like it, when you're still in that world, you don't understand that this is a direct consequence of what I am teaching them, you know? You only see it as like, oh, they don't understand. But it's like, no, like that is Christianity. <laughs> Self-hatred comes from Christianity. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's just like, I don't think I could have this conversation with someone who was sort of fully in this evangelical world because I think they wouldn't maybe be willing to recognize that some of our foundational beliefs are self-hatred. Yeah. And to see... And I'm open to be proven wrong. No, I think amongst Christians, maybe like more liberal Christians, they'll respond like, oh, you know, that's just a conservative interpretation or fundamentalist interpretation and can kind of, oh, you know, there's all this nuance in the text. And if you look at the original, you know, Greek or Hebrew, but yeah, that there's that it's still the shrugging. Yeah. Or kind of a shrugging off of complicitness. Yes. Responsibility. Yeah. yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. I'm not complicit in this because I only do the light version. <laughs> yeah. The more loving version, which yeah, I dabbled in in liberal Christianity too, but I'm disillusioned with that too. And I'm happy to have left that too. <laughs> well, 
I mean, that leads us perfectly into the next question, which is, would you want to see CAJ reformed or what? Yes. So this is such an interesting question. And I've thought about it in light of the call to action letter that the um, women from the class of 2015, 2016 put together. And I think their calls to action, which include revamping the way that sex ed is taught. I think that that was a big one. Like for me, when I was thinking about, would this be possible at CAJ? Anything that's not pro-abstinence or that is gay affirming, like LGBTQ affirming, that goes against fundamentally what many of these Christian missionaries believe. And so I don't know if it's possible. Yeah. Like, would CAJ continue to be CAJ with these radical, much needed changes? Could it continue to exist, basically? Right. I mean, because it's not whether you can have a Christian school that, you know, teaches these necessary things, but CAJ itself. And when we think about where does CAJ get its funding from? No, it would lose its funding, right? Yeah. Uh, or, or or any teacher who tries to teach that would be fired or yeah. kind of discontinued, you know, in the more less dramatic way. Let me ask you this. Do you think we can push teachers at CAJ to talk about racism? I definitely think so. But then again, with the conversation in America, where all these conservatives are pushing back against Black Lives Matter messaging, where it's become this political divide, then maybe I'm not so sure. I really hope that there can be honest, really good conversation and anti-racism work done. But the cynical part of me thinks, oh, you know, there's going to be a ton of conservative missionaries who are like, no, this is Antifa or like, this is brainwashing. And so as far as conversations go, I feel like it's actually less polarizing than conversations about sex and sexual orientation. But yeah, I don't know. Well, okay. So you can think about people who are very conservative and get really offended by any mention of racism. But I think another big, you could call it a danger or a block, is that there are very liberal people. They will say, I don't like racism. But I mean, I think of the this recent letter that Mrs. Foxwell posted, basically condemning racism. But all it does is all people, you know, we should learn from all people. Like it's very much at the surface level. Like the Bible says that everyone is equal or something. And, and <laughs> there's one sentence there like, we recognize that occasionally in the past, Christianity has been connected with colonization or something. Like there's a very brief mention of like, Maybe sometimes, you know, but first of all, the letter doesn't say Black Lives Matter, which I think is an interesting omission. And second of all, it's, uh, did you ever read Divided by Faith? No. I need to go back and actually reread this book because maybe I'm only keeping the good parts in my head, but it basically lays out how evangelical Christianity, white Christianity is fundamentally unable to even understand racism, let alone address it because it only ever looks at it at the individual level and never even understands what structure looks like. And and that's this, this letter was just very much surface level racism is bad, which Maybe some people were offended by that, but most people are not going to be offended by just saying racism is bad. But (laughs) there was no mention of white supremacy. 
There was no mention of structural inequalities. And I mean, if you're really going to dig into racism, you have to dig into capitalism as well. And they're not going to do that. They're not going to look at how our entire economy as missionaries has ties to racism, capitalism, you know, all of, all of those things. And so I think on a surface level, I can see teachers trying, you know, having really good intentions. But if you're an evangelical, especially a white evangelical, I guess when I say this, I'm thinking of white teachers. I just don't think in that worldview, a view, an understanding of structural racism doesn't exist. You know, it, those things can't go together, I don't think. Again, I'm open to be proving wrong. Now that I'm thinking about it, talking about racist structures, I have a lot of difficulty seeing that happen at CAJ because the structure, the authority figures are for the most part, I believe still, white North American missionaries. I mean, the very foundation of missions is we are good, they are bad, yeah, and we are going to teach them our ways. That is what missions is. Jesus happened to really like the, the white people. <laughs> and so somehow Europeans ended up being Christian. And then for whatever reason, they wanted to go out and evangelize the reason was colonization. And then on top of that, Japan is also like extreme nationalism, not Western racism, but just like really extreme, like Japanese culture is superior. Japanese bodies are superior. Such blatant uh, disregard of other Asians, of, you know, other uh, ethnicities, and also like no recognition of Japanese imperialism, no recognition of sort of how many other Asians do all of this low wage labor in Japan. It's like, who's working in the factories? Who's doing the sex work? who's working in the restaurants, you know, it's like Japan also as a country relies on its own brand of racism. So we've got the two, <laughs> I mean, we've got the European racists and we got the Japanese racists, you know, it's like, yeah. that's a whole other thing is <laughs> addressing, I mean, not just bias, but including bias against Chinese, Koreans, you know, Filipinos. And that was something that never came up in school. Like we learned about slavery, we learned about Jim Crow, but we didn't really learn about Japanese colonization of Korea for whatever reason. Yeah, maybe because it would be considered too sensitive. Well, yeah, and no one at the school really that I know of, again, I'm just, you know, speaking from my perspective, I don't know of anyone who would be able to teach that, who is yeah. equipped to teach that. And I think I did a project on racism, and then that was my, like, senior year, whatever that was. Senior was, comp? Yeah, yeah, it was racism. Hmm. And I was like trying to come up with like a project related to racism. Like, and I was like, because the senior comp involves this component where you're doing some kind of service activity to help solve the problem. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I was like, no one could really give me advice. I, so ninth grade, when I did my project, 
I learned about the blue eye, brown eye, Jane Elliott, this uh, white school teacher in the 60s who like taught her students about racism oh. by, you know, dividing the class into blue eyes and brown eyes and she would treat one group badly. And that's how they learned about racism, which mm-hmm. is like, okay, she was trying her best. Mm. You know, that's not really the way you do it, but she was trying her best and she became really famous. She has all these YouTube videos you can watch. So that's what I was researching. I did that on Miss Fisher eighth grade class I like went into her class and I like gave them a talk about racism and I was like treating people based on physical differences is dumb (laughs) when it's like there were Koreans in that class there were people who experienced racism every day in that class and I could have asked them for their experiences but again I mean not that students at CAJ would have the vocabulary I would imagine to even describe those experiences sorry I'm like talking too much this is your interview but I have a lot of feelings Uh, yeah for sure you're totally right about like as kids you know that's it's like the water that we're drinking you know the whole like analogy of fish don't know they're in water you know like it's that as kids we don't have that awareness but the parents do and do they from I i mean some Some do. And from what I've talked about with my mom and stories that I've heard from her, and there were conversations around this divide where Korean moms didn't feel comfortable being part of PTA, you know, because there is this language difficulty, like unless you spoke English and were, you know, comfortable interacting with North Americans. Right. It's it's really difficult to be actively involved in the school community. And I think there must be a lot of stories from the parents of these students. And my mom, I mean, I hope we can interview her someday. (laughs) I'll have to ask her, but you know, she was on the board and she has that perspective that she was on the CAJ board for a bit. And she has that unique experience of being a Japanese woman on this board filled with mainly white North American missionaries. And she's someone who is very conversant in that world. You know, she's part of it and speaks great English, but also, you know, she's Japanese and she has many friends who are, Jap- you know, at the time, you know, many Japanese parents, um, Korean parents that she was friends with. So I would love to talk to her and hear about what she observed and what she felt being that bridge role. That I mean, yeah, that would be super interesting. Do you remember anyone ever talking to you about anything like that? Like someone our age, sort of like feeling like they're experiencing some kind of racism? Not from, no one comes to mind from our like generation. I would want to talk to my siblings. I think that's another thing about CAJ. It's a changing institution it's always evolving depending on if there are a lot of missionaries coming in to japan at the time or what the student makeup it's very different i think based on what years you're attending and my brother who's nine years older than me there were more missionary kids at that time now caj and our our generation there's more and more like business families people with non-religious backgrounds who are sending their kids here But for my brother's generation and then prior to his generation, there was way more white uh, American missionary kids. 
So I imagine that kids from that generation who weren't in that demographic, whether they're non-religious or whatever, I, I'm sure that that ex- their experience is more stark, and there are probably a lot more instances of blatant racism because the culture was so predominantly Christian North American, or more obvious. Yeah, yeah. It looks different when maybe the demographic is more mixed. I mean, but I also just think of students who were black, students who were dark skinned, you know, from wherever they were from. Like, I mean, I know that they experienced racism and I never heard about anyone talking about it at the time. I have now, but not at the time. Yeah, not at the time. Okay, well, let's talk about healing. What does radical healing look like to you? So I already spoke a bit about it, but unpacking a lot of the Christian doctrine that I internalize and just believe to be the capital T truth, that has been healing for me. It's been hard, but it's been really healing too. And it's been the necessary work. So now I no longer believe in original sin, which of course now it feels like, of course, like how could I have believed, how could I have internalized such hatred of myself? But at the time, it just is, you know, part of the gospel. So I've had to, I mean, I go to therapy because I still have a lot of this unpacking work to do. I won't attribute my depression to just this one single doctrine but like it plays a big role and I've engaged in self-harm like the language that I have towards myself was abusive at times but I would normalize that you know I'd be like you know in the bible Paul's like I'm the worst of sinners like self-flagellation is normal And so I've had to slowly move away from unpack this idea that that's healthy or normal uh, and slowly teach myself, no, positive self-talk is not like cheesy new age spirituality that, you know, I would have been contemptuous of before. Like, no, it's really important to like learn how to self-soothe and to, yeah, just love myself, (laughs) self-love. Yeah. How did you unpack these harmful ideologies? So I think I was very much in the Christian world after. So, well, there's so much I could talk about, like my college experience. I went to Harvard and when I entered Harvard, I was very insecure. I had so much imposter syndrome and I was also very guilty after having been in a like sexually active relationship with my high school boyfriend. And I had this like huge come to Jesus moment where I was like, oh, clean slate, like God, I've received God's grace. And college is going to be this like new chapter where I learn how to be, you know, chase after God. And so I came in with that mindset and that mindset like influenced my whole college experience, I think, because I like was so desperate to latch on to Christian community so I found one I loved it you know I was so into it and unfortunately they were more conservative than the Christian world that I had come from in a lot of ways and I remember talking with you on the phone trying to explain to you why I thought complementarianism was actually good and biblical and um, I haven't heard that word in so long (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. And, and now I'm like, just now what I've graduated five years ago and just now 
I'm starting to get angry <laughs> about all this Calvinist beliefs, this patriarchal beliefs that I internalized in college, <laughs> which is the time when you're supposed to be like getting super radicalized, you know, and like in the other direction. <laughs> But yeah, I got like even more conservative in college. And that's not unique, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. But okay, so going back to the question, I was you know, identifying so much with my faith and being like, okay, after I leave, I really need to recreate the same sort of community. Like there's all this warnings about like, oh, if you don't, you don't get plugged in, dot, dot, dot. It's kind of like, oh, what's going to happen? Yeah, what's like, going to okay. happen? <laughs> So I got, you know, was really thinking, okay, I need to plug in. And I was already super plugged into the Anglican church that I attended in Boston. And then I moved to Japan, was part of a Christian little missionary bubble, but didn't have that same like robust Christian community with friends who I really loved. Um, so it's kind of started to more actively question things there. And then I moved to Kansai, where I was even more isolated to be with my boyfriend, now husband. And that isolation was really terrible in a lot of ways, but it was, it was what allowed me to sit down, read a ton of books, listen to podcasts, think through what I wanted to believe and to unpack a lot of my beliefs without being influenced by authority figures. I, I'm very easily influenced by authority figures. Yeah, that also makes me angry too. Think about all the Christian males in my life who I've worshipped. This period of solitude created the environment where I could deconstruct and reconstruct my worldview. And then therapy too. That has been really helpful. Um, and as far as resources go, I'd also want to plug this one book. It's called Leaving the Fold by Dr. Marlene Winnell. She was a missionary kid, I believe in Taiwan. It's pretty old, actually, but it still feels super relevant. And she is the person who coined the term religious trauma syndrome. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is a concept that I have slowly come to understand and see in my own life. I think when, when I hear trauma, I'm like, oh, I didn't, I had a great childhood. You know, I'm so privileged. I went to private school. Uh, I can say all these things, but, you know, in the process of therapy, thinking like about my super hyper religious childhood where I was preoccupied with, you know, hell, my own unworthiness as a human, being extremely, worried about the salvation of everyone you know like yeah when you're a kid that stuff is heavy and it does influence you and so for me I've just been unpacking the religious trauma that I experienced in my life and I mean many of us have and I think I think it's sadly a normal thing like religious trauma is a normal yes thing. yeah yes yeah. So I would love for more people to think about that in the context of their own lives. And yeah, Marlene Win Winnell's book was pretty pivotal and helpful for me. So yeah, plug for that book. Cool. Thank you so much for sharing. I think healing is something that we have to do some on our own, but we also have to do some as a shared activity. And I think even just witnessing someone else's healing is healing to you. And, and when you can talk about it and um, make people feel like, oh, it's okay, don't have to be ashamed. I think that that's just something that's really helpful and that's really needed. And so, I mean... I feel like I'm making something that 
I needed to have years ago, but years ago, I would not have the capacity to, <laughs> to do this. And so, yeah. I mean, we're all on our own journeys, but yeah, thank you so much for sharing. That's really helpful for me. And I hope it's helpful for other people. My pleasure. Yeah, I don't have much opportunity to talk about these things, but would love to have more conversations about it. Because I think, like you said, there are other people out there who are experiencing or have experienced a lot of CAJ grads with a lot of interesting stories. And I think this is a common thread that isn't talked about enough. So yeah, I was yeah really happy to be able to talk and share. Cool. Thanks for listening to this episode of Radical Healing Podcast. This podcast is made by Erica Hughesby and Julianne Picardo with music by Marlos Townsend. You can find and subscribe to Radical Healing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For information and more resources, check out our website, RadicalHealingPod.com and follow us on Instagram at RadicalHealingPod. We're always looking for more people who would like to share their story, whether it's about the CHA experience, growing up international, or radical healing. If you'd like to get in touch, send us an email at RadicalHealingPod at gmail.com.